Welcome to Crossing the Chasm, a sound physician's podcast covering a broad range of topics relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion in healthcare. And now, here's your host, Dr. Greg Johnson. It is June, and once again, it is Pride Month. In preparing for this podcast episode, I was reflecting on why do we celebrate these different months. We celebrate Black History Month. We recently celebrated Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, where we're obviously currently uh, highlighting Pride Month uh, and a focus on our LGBTQ plus community. And at least my answer was that it's an opportunity for under-recognized and in many instances, historically disenfranchised groups to highlight to us all, their communities, their culture. Um, But in the interest of our listeners, it's an opportunity to really also take the time to highlight, educate, enlighten others regarding issues of importance to those various communities. Again, it's Pride Month, and so this episode is going to take the opportunity to address topics of import to our LGBTQ plus patients and colleagues. The reason being is, A, it's not a homogeneous group, but a group that has a variety of different topics of interest, some of which we'll delve into in hearing the story of uh, a gay physician, uh, as well as opportunities that we can collectively better care for our, our LGBTQ plus patients. I think it's a particular import with the known challenges that we have to diversity, equity, inclusion topics in total, but also the fact that so many people are challenging whether or not Pride Month should be celebrated in uh, any number of other establishments, as well as many of the challenges that are uh, that the trans community is particularly identifying through political action uh, and, in some instances, political influence on the ability to care for uh, patients through gender-affirming surgery and the like. We're not going to get into everything in this particular topic because that's not possible in a single 40-45 minute podcast, but it is a reminder that it's a topic that we're going to continue to address here, and we are going to start our conversation and exploration now. So here's the next episode. Welcome to our next episode of Crossing the Chasm, uh, a DEI podcast. And today uh, I'm joined by uh, Dr. Brett Cooper, who is an assistant professor at the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. Uh, He specializes in adolescence and young uh, young adult medicine, uh, including uh, LGBTQ health, uh, anxiety and depression treatment, reproductive care, HIV, uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis, uh, and uh, puberty consultations. Dr. Cooper earned his medical degree at Wright State University and completed residency in general pediatrics at the University of Toledo. Uh, He's received advanced training in adolescent medicine through a fellowship at the Baylor College of Medicine. And he also holds a Master of Education degree in Curriculum and Instruction for Healthcare Professionals from the University of uh, Houston. Uh, He has spoken on a number of topics, both nationally and regionally, um, around HIV PrEP, as well as LGBTQ health, and as an author of uh, position papers on HIV PrEP and uh, recommendations on promoting the health and well-being of sexual and diverse uh, gender diverse adolescents. So welcome, Dr. Cooper. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Greg. Um, you know, I think um, that was a well-stated um, biography. Um, and I think that it's really that I let, what led me to doing what I'm doing is um, I make no shame of saying that I am an out uh, gay man in medicine, um, which was something that I really struggled with as I was going through college um, and medical school was really this this back and forth of would this help, would this hinder, does it actually even make a difference? Um, and you know what I, I came to conclude was, 
you know, somebody's going to figure something out one way or the other. Um, and at, at some point, the, the question really is, do I do a better service for patients by being out in medicine? Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that folks often say is representation matters in medicine. And, you know, this is probably something you've touched on in, in your previous podcasts is really, you know, patients want a physician who looks like them, whether that's racial, whether that's cultural, whether that's sexual orientation. They want to be able to say, like, hey, if he or she can do it, I can do it, too. Um, and, and it doesn't feel like this big, you know, mountain to climb when you see folks who look like you. Uh, and so I made the decision um, during my first year of medical school uh, to be out to my classmates. Um, it wasn't something, right, that I just post all over social media, um, but certainly my classmates knew. Um, I had been, um, I'd started dating my my now husband in between first and second year of, of medical school. And so he obviously came around to, you know, meet my classmates um, and things like that, just like they would bring their spouses. And so then, you know, I I was very careful of, you know, for my my attendings that I worked with or my residents, I sort of had to read the room and feel out where was a safe space still, because this was 2009 when I started my rotations. And there were still some um, specialties, which I won't name, that maybe were a little more homophobic than others. Um, but you still tried to find those individual allies uh, where you could. Uh, and so I think that made for a richer experience because I spent many years hiding in the closet. And so it was always like, who's going to find out? Who's going to know about this? Um, and, and, and it's much more of a freeing experience. And so I think as I've gone forward, really what I have tried to do is, you know, the, there's also this question of should I let my patients know? Like just outwardly say it. Um, and I think in my particular field, I don't really know if that, that does any good um, because I've got adolescent patients, they're there with a parent or guardian usually. Um, and, and I really view that space as really being about the adolescent. It's not about my journey, it's about their journey. Um, whereas there might be other folks that you typically see this in family medicine or internal medicine, that they will advertise their practice as LGBTQ friendly you know, or that they themselves are that way, because that's the the demographic of adult patients are trying to target for for a safe space for them to have a doctor. Um, and so, you know, I often have times where, like, let's say a patient has uh, something they're going through, which I have life experience with due to my sexual orientation, how I've tended to approach that for those patients is just talking the third person about this, quote, friend I have, um, or my friend's mother, when in reality it's my mom. Um, because I think then it keeps the focus on my patient and not my experience, because everybody's experience is different. Right. Um, and I think it's important to save room for that. Again, whatever kind of minority or diversity topic you're talking about, it's not about me, it's about that person. And um, that being said, I do not hide my Twitter. Like, it's a public Twitter profile. And so, um, you know, if a patient happens to Google my name, Google's algorithm may show my Twitter there. And if they may see pictures of my husband and I at a formal event for a medical society or whatever the case might be. Um, so they have to do the work to find that, though. It's not, you know, what right. I, I say. And, you know, I've... Interestingly, I've had a patient mention she found my Twitter, and then that's all she said. Um, left it at that. I had another one tell my resident that she doesn't usually like gay people, but I'm cool. So again, I don't really know what to make with that either. Um, but that's where we left it. And she still comes back, and it's, I don't know that she knows that I know that, <laughs> but it hasn't really changed anything. And so I, I think that overall being out like that has really helped me, A, in my own life, just to be kind of free, for right. lack of a better word. Um, but again, I think it comes back to the the representation and that, you know, despite me being gay, I've managed to be elected to um, 
our board of trustees for our state medical association by the, the delegates at that that meeting. You know, I've been able to, you know, I'm currently running for city council where I live with my husband on my mailers that have gone out, just like other people put their their family. And so I, I think that, you know, for listeners, I just have to say that I think, you know, that's a, an experience not everyone has. And so, again, to save room for those folks who that experience hasn't been positive is really important to state. Um, that, that that's not everybody's unique situation. No, thank you for so much for sharing that. And uh, I, I think it is a very freeing story, just even listening to it from my perspective on um, knowing that uh, it's an important approach, it's an, it's an intentional approach, but you're right. It's not, uh, you know, it, it people can co come out, be out, um, be in their own skin, however way that they see fit. And I really loved your focus on it's about your patient and and whatever uh, their needs are at the time uh, and your journey doesn't have to be theirs. That's uh, thank you for sharing that. that. That resonated very much with me. So you've done so much um, with respect to LGBTQ health. Um, um, you've written papers uh, on specifically ed LGBTQ education and the lack of it um, in both medicine as well as residency. I think one of your articles said it's like five hours of of training in, you know, the the thousands of hours that that goes through. What what is an area that you think, um, and and where is it in that continuum um, that you think needs the most focus? Yeah, so this is this is always a challenging topic because I think there are folks who struggle like this population doesn't need a separate chapter like I have a chapter for cardiology or nephrology or whatever it might be. It's really again about those in certain areas those unique things to, to really think about. So, you know, when I was in medical school, the only and this was 2007 to 11, the only kind of topics that I had were that gay men get HIV. And that was really the extent of my LGBTQ kind of relevance and education. I didn't have standardized patients when we were doing that that identified that way. You know, there wasn't these stories of resilience. And so oftentimes folks focus on like how bad is life for LGBTQ people? Um, and life isn't always I mean, yes, there are bad actors out there and, you know, everybody knows what's going on in state legislatures across the country. But, you know, I just talked about a story that for me has a fairly decent outcome. Um, and so I really like the focus on how do we just weave those specific things into a thread? And so rather than it be like, okay, here's my four hours of LGBTQ and year one of medical school and we never talk about it again. It's really, what is this common thread that goes through each piece of your education? And so, you know, when we talk about, um, I, I don't know, just thinking about like OBGYN, for example, how do we teach students to understand that not everybody who gives birth to a child or has a hysterectomy as female. You could have a trans male who is getting a hysterectomy. And so really trying to think about like how you document or how you talk to, to folks. And so, you know, instead of saying mom, say the birth parent or, or something like that, which I know, you know, as many things you've probably talked about, these things can rub certain individuals the wrong way. Um, but I think it's that culture change over time that we can really get to a place where that is the norm. Um, so that's really what I think is is missing partially is that representation. And then when you do represent, you know, we talk about this for standardized patients, like just have a case where the person is LGBTQ. They don't need to have depression. They don't need to have an STD. They don't need to have all these things. Just you know, it needs to have a purpose, like don't just do right. it because, but it needs to have a purpose. So, you know, I think about, um, there, there's a video that Johns Hopkins had put in their, their kind of curriculum when I saw it at a national meeting that th this young man was seeing a gastroenterologist for stomach pain. 
And, you know, when it actually came down to it and this this gastroenterologist did some more talking with this young man by himself, it happened to be that he identified as gay, but it was like his little secret. And so these stomach pains were actually more a manifestation of like his anxiety right. around that rather than like he's gay. And so that way that student can then say, OK, I don't need to order 50 tests. I need to get this kid some help if that's what he wants, just to like talk to somebody about the conflict he's feeling. And so that's really what I would like to see more of is these intersectional things as well. So like, what does it mean, you know, when you think about a white cisgender gay man versus an African-American transgender woman, those needs are extremely different and they face a very different set of social pressures and, and you can't lump them together. And so I guess that's really what I look for is this this thread that it affects all pieces of medical education, but it doesn't need to be like the gay four hours of lecture. Right. No, I, I, I completely agree with that. And there was something that resonated particularly with me because you're right um, when we're particularly discussing language um, and your your comment of, you know, it's going to rub some people the wrong way in terms of even having the, the conversations I was I continue to reflect back on your original point. Respecting our patients is respecting however they want, you know, even how we discuss the patient, him, her, or themselves, right? It's respecting the pronouns, respecting uh -huh. the fact that, you know, your example, um, which was absolutely one that I, I hadn't considered until you just shared it of, you know, it's a, a trans uh, male having a hysterectomy. And I was sitting there for a second and going, you know, simple thought processes and how we discuss our patients is going to matter. And you're right, it's in documentation, it's in our uh, interfaces with each other, including our, um, you know, consultants, etc. Um, th these are all subtle but important ways that we're, again, focusing on the patient and not necessarily our own um, biases and approaches. Uh -huh. So uh, there, I, I know I'm kind of touching in a variety of areas, but, you know, to your point, um, there's not a, an individual section um, as we go through these, but one of the, the areas that I've continued to explore and, and been reading on myself are documented health disparities for um, uh, for a lot of, for a variety of different aspects of the LGBTQ plus community, um, you know, and you mentioned, you know, people don't want to talk about this all the time in terms of its depression or suicide or other aspects. Is there an area that either in your research, your practice or other areas that you focus on or um, we can educate our, our listeners uh, about? Because I think it's, it's certainly important. I know the Society of Hospital Medicine, um, I'm a hospitalist and, and I continue to, to follow up on it, but um, it was, uh, it, and I'm pulling up the, the article that was um, here, but it was uh, really about referencing uh, language with respect to patients and um, their, the lack of interface with a lot of the healthcare community because of insensitivity with respect to LGBTQ plus concerns. Yeah, you know, there that's always this, and that's why I really struggle with the the idea of like I need the gay doctor to go to as my my PCP, right? Um, because like I don't, it's like is that even a thing? And so you know you just be able to go to a PCP, a right? Um, <laughs> and, yeah. and so you know like I haven't chosen that for myself um, because you know it's also this. You know, uh, to your point about, I don't want to say it's this insensitivity because for some people it is, but like when I first moved to the Dallas area and looked for a family physician to see, I, I found this close person because I hate driving to the doctor. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I, I went in and I got his, he was probably in his 60s or 70s and had paper forms as you did back in the day. And so I got this form and he had a question on there that asked about marital status. And so you have the usual answers like single, divorced, married. And then the answer at the end said alternative lifestyle. And, and I thought to myself, I was like, what does this even mean? Like, right. do I go to raves on the weekend? Do I like smoke weed all the time? What is this? Right. And so I actually asked him about it when I, he came in the room for that first visit. 
And I was like, what are you actually trying to ask here? I was like, because, you know, if you want to know if I'm married, like, I will just circle married. And then we can talk about that. Um, because alternative lifestyle doesn't tell you anything at all. And so he wasn't rude or insensitive. I think it was just like when he designed his forms, probably in the 1990s, like to him, that made sense. And so, you know, we had a great conversation about that. And, you know, right now my, I switched from him for a different reason due to his practice being bought. But my current family physician, like we talk all the time about my husband and my husband sees him as well because um, he had to switch physicians also. Um, and so it's just like no big deal. Now, you know, I think it's also we're in a monogamous, almost 15 year relationship. And so we don't really have conversations about like multiple sexual partners and, and that kind of stuff because it's not our realm. But I would hope that my current physician would be able to do that if they identified those circumstances. And so, you know, I, I always tell folks that I know these things can be scary to talk about, especially if you've not really done it in residency training or medical school training. Um, or, you know, I, there was a physician um, in the DFW area that uh, my partner was taken out by the hospitals like marketing folks when she joined. And he said that he didn't have any LGBTQ patients in his practice. Now, I think all of us who are listening that are medical would know that statistics will tell you that in an area as large as the DFW area, even if you go with like roughly 4% of the population is that you have at least one, I can guarantee it. And so you're just not asking. Right. And, you know, I've heard from some pediatricians, you know, primarily when I talk around the state um, that they're like, well, but what do I do if I get an answer to this? And so if they ask like a male patient, you know, as I do, are you, if you're sexually active, are you having sex with men, women, both? If they get like, let's say men is the answer, they're like, okay, so what do I do with that? <laughs> and so they, it's this like, if I don't ask the question, I won't get the answer and then I don't have to do anything with it. And so I think as we start to, to teach people and really, again, make this normal, hopefully then, even if you can't do anything, you know who in your area can do something. And so, you know, like I, if you need that patient to get a rectal swab for STIs, like send them my way. If you don't have the swabs, I can do it, but just know that I exist. And so that's really what I, I sort of expect or hope for a baseline level is that ask the questions, right. the more you do it, it'll be more comfortable. But don't feel like you have to have the answers. Like, know who your resource is. Page me if you have a question in the office. And so that's really, I guess, would be my my hope, is that that's really where that comes out. And I think to your original point that they, like, don't see the physician, you know, that I, I often cite, I show this video that the Oregon Health Sciences campus put together because I think it really hits home and I use like a very specific piece of the clip but it's a trans male who was going to the emergency room for repeated urinary tract infections um, and the he describes really feeling blown off because you know as you and I know like people with male genitalia it's very uncommon to get a UTI because of our anatomy and so he was getting blown off and blown off. And finally, like the, he told this physician, like, I need you to understand what is in my pants. Like, would you like me to show you why I'm getting UTIs and I need help? And so like, you shouldn't have to do that. That's right. really absurd. And so I think, you know, I, I'm glad on the flip side that the, the, these repeated physicians were at least acknowledging his male identity. But then this, it really speaks to the need for like an REMR, I can do an organ inventory. And so if I have that patient flagged as male because it differs from their sex assigned at birth, the, the EMR will flag that that's a difference. And then I can go in and put literally like what body parts does a patient have? So then if I'm like, I don't understand why this male keeps getting UTIs. I mean, first of all, 
you probably should have worked that up knowing our training. But second of all, <laughs> Thank that's you. a different question. That's a different exactly. question. But, um, you know, you could have gone and looked and been like, oh, this person has a uterus and ovaries. Like maybe it's because their urethra is super tiny and that's like cisgender women can easily get UTIs. This is why this patient is getting it. So, you know, there's a couple things we could deconstruct about that, that case, but I think it speaks to the point, like that young person could have literally given up ongoing. Right. And, you know, there's there's another part of that video that a, a trans person talks about how they had a, a broken, forget which body part, but their bone was broken. And they actually refused to go to the emergency room because they didn't want to be misgendered. So like they had a bone that needed to be set and refused to go because they didn't want to be misgendered. So not only is it like the shame and the stigma, it then leads to these worsening health outcomes. You know, just like, for example, we saw in COVID, people who may have been okay if they had gone in the onset of symptoms, now are suddenly intubated and on a respirator because it just spiraled and spiraled and spiraled because they were afraid of going. And so it, it's leading to unnecessary healthcare costs and morbidity for some patients because of they're literally afraid of seeing us. Well, uh, yes, and, and that's, I mean, the definition of a health disparity and which is exactly what you stated, completely unnecessary because it's the system that failed, not the patient. Um, I, I'm curious because you brought up the electronic health record and, and again, sort of light came on on very standardized, not very significant approaches mm -hmm. um, with, uh, you know, your um, your health system obviously made sure that that was addressed. But I'm wondering, uh, you know, what initiatives had to be taken on? Because my my gut tells me that nobody thought about it up front. But then I'm hoping I'm wrong. <laughs> I mean, it it predated me. So I started here in 2018 and it was already set that way when I started. And I think oh, okay. part of that is because we have had, in quotes, a gender health program um, that now operates sort of covertly. But because of those patients being in our system, mm -hmm. they had, I don't say had, but it was a big push to, to change that and give that option. Um, so I have multiple options I can choose for a gender identity. I can free text one if somebody's got a one that's not the typical choices that we see folks choose. Um, I can choose pronouns for patients. Um, you know, we talked about the the organ inventory. And so that actually then flows over, assuming someone in their note template has that set up, that my note template fills in a patient's um, preferred name and it will change the gender. So instead of it saying like, you know, Julie is a 17 year old female, it would say Josh is a 17 year old male um, and fill that in. Um, or, you know, for the non-binary folks, it just feels child or adult, depending on their age um, in the system. And, and so that helps some if other clinics also do that, they can capture um, those things. And I always say like, Preferred name is a reasonable thing to put in there because like my legal first name is M. Brett, but that's not what I go by when I see somebody. And so, you know, I can change Elizabeth to Liz and then all of their notes will say Liz because that's what they would like to go by. And so I think this also is relevant for all your patients um, as you change that. So your point is well taken, though, that this was a very systematic effort by folks who care about these issues to get IT to make those changes in the background. Yeah, because yeah, the, the, these are, again, I, I think all significant and quite honestly get um, all of the, the clinical team on the same page in terms of making sure that they're not misrepresenting uh, or uh, honestly uh, misgendering or communicating inappropriately to the patient. Mm -hmm. 
Um, well, I, I've done what I always do, which is I ask a whole bunch of questions um, and, and get you talking. But I do always like to make space um, in uh, these conversations for people to just ask Greg. Um, I usually get a, 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 a some level of a difficult question that I have to spend a little bit of time thinking about. Um, but I'm always interested in hearing it and nobody preps me. So I didn't prep you necessarily for this, but I'd love to, to hear a question. We're good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, I think what I I would find really interesting, given, you know, the topic of this podcast and, and your experience um, as a, a racial minority is the this this topic that's really discussed and we're getting the heat of it in Texas in particular. But this like this thought that if we and I know you can't really change your your race so much, but. I think it's relevant that th this thought that if I talk about DEI or I talk about LGBTQ issues with my patients, I'm somehow like convincing them that it's cool to be gay or that I'm normalizing this. And so, you know, we actually have legislation right now in Texas that hasn't passed, thankfully, um, because it's still up for debate in our state house. But that would bar universities, for example, from even having a DEI office. Yeah. And and so I'm just curious from your perspective, because I know how I feel about this being gay myself, that like no one, like anything I watched wasn't like, you know what, let me go out and try this. But I think I'm just curious for your perspective on, you know, when we talk about these topics that somehow it's like, they're more important or like why, you know, we're saying like, well, what about the white people or what about yeah. the straight people? So I'm just curious for your perspective on kind of these two topics, because I, I think you and I probably agree that it's important to talk about them without the distraction. Yeah, so um, I, I, yeah, I, I think stating it is calmly as I can um, that, yeah, I find it infuriating um, because uh, and uh, I, I joke about this because people are less like, oh, well, it's just the next woke special um, of of, you know, of being cool because being woke is being in um, the, the bottom line is that why are we discussing these topics? Well, a. I know that, you know, this podcast exists and, uh, you know, the topic of DEI exists because the simple fact of the matter is that, A, there have been documented health inequities for 80 plus years in a variety of different communities, including the LGBTQ plus community. But, you know, 80 plus years of, I call it admiring the problem. Um, and we have an imperative that we have to get better outcomes for our patients, all of our patients. And if that requires a dedicated focus for us to get right about an, a, a subset of patients, then it requires a dedicated focus. For the diversity aspect, it's why is diversity important? Well, um, I, I think, you know, and let's talk about the, you, you highlighted it, let's talk about the white people or why are we ignoring them? Well, we're not ignoring, we're just under, we're trying to communicate collectively there's privilege that is that comes with even making that statement and mm -hmm. that we as a society don't like saying that we're privileged. But whether we want to acknowledge that or not, um, you know, whether it's socioeconomically, whether it's socially, what, there are things that come with privilege and understanding that to confront individuals of their privilege um, and to say, I need you to realize this and, and every time you say, you know, oh, well, you know, you can do better and you have the same same opportunities I do. Well, no, you know what? Not everybody does. And so, you know, a lot of this is confronting it. And then the last piece, and I, I'm, I'm very intentionally doing the equity, <laughs> diversity and the inclusivity part is um, tokenism is still very real in this country uh, and people like to say, oh, well, somebody's here <laughs> and we've we've got our black doctor or we've got our gay doctor. And so we're 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 diverse. And that individual is marginalized, even being in the room. And inclusivity is not just having a seat at the table, but then knowing that that 
perspective, <clears throat> that personal history, excuse me, I got passionate enough to start coughing, is, um, it, it, you know, it has to be included in as part of the decision making. And most importantly, it's when we take all of these together, patient outcomes get better, businesses perform better, <laughs> like all of the data says, like, we've got to, we've got to do this differently. And so um, I, you know, yeah, I, that's, that, that, that's it in summary for me is, is we've got, we have to do this because, um, you know, there are ways to do things better and we have to confront the reality that America is a great country, but it's not a perfect one. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it, it's also, you know, when I talk about this with our, our residents, because there are, depending on the source you look at, folks will talk about how Dallas is one of the most segregated cities in America by geography. Right. And and so thinking about, like, it's not because, like, there's something inherent about living in South Dallas that makes you have bad health. It's the fact that, like, there is one grocery store within 10 miles of your house or, you know, I, I use this example when I have to send people to the lab, just finding a Quest or a LabCorp in yeah. South Dallas is like one versus in my northern suburb, I can go to five within like eight miles of my house. Right. And so, you know, I think that's where, for my opinion, if we focus on the, it's not because they're black that this is the problem. It's because of these factors from 50, 60 years ago that have created an environment. Um, that's really where I feel like hopefully then we don't get into the, the woke piece of this, but just literally stating the facts. And I think, you know, as we look at what's going on with things around the country on book banning and all these other woke things, the, the goal of history is to learn from it. And so hopefully that's what we can do um in my humble opinion but thank you for your your perspective because i think it's it's certainly something folks have to think about as we we take on these topics and really talk about them in very objective you know in this case health-based things because otherwise we just keep like perpetuating this this myth that it's because of your race or your sexual orientation that like this is happening and it's not it's not like you know lgbtq people have higher rates of depression because that's who they are it's because of the society around them or their their family and so if we can focus on those things i think it only makes our healthcare system better rather than woke. i i could not agree with you more and uh i think that it also puts i mean you know, I think the other aspect of it that gets people uncomfortable is, is well, you, you, I think you're talking about me and, and what's going on. And I was like, well, I, we are talking about you, but we're not talking about you personally. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it's to understand that, um, and we're not calling you a racist or a homophobe or anything else. Uh -huh. It's let's just have the conversation that these issues exist and you can be a part of the solution and that doesn't make you woke it just makes you part of the solution so well uh, thank you for that you i i, I you touched on it and i want to make sure that we we take a little bit of time on here uh, because uh, you're involved in the texas medical association um and you're you're part of um well you you're chair of the the lgbtq committee and one of the things that the texas medical association does is significantly um, around advocacy um and uh, i well i would love you know you discuss the texas law or that one potential texas law um, that, that's forthcoming are there any other advocacy topics that you would like to highlight for the audience because i think you know the challenge of um reading everything is that you, you can't you, you don't necessarily get a, a good clue of what to look after. And so I, I'd love to, if there's an advocacy topic, um, it's come up for me a number of times and I know I feel ignorant many times um, in, in terms of helping um, people just understand what's out there, particularly with respect to healthcare. Yeah, so, you know, as as you mentioned, and I, you know, folks, will, this will vary depending on the, the state you live in, but like our legislative session is basically a hundred and, oh, somebody's gonna 
be mad at me for not knowing this, but it's like 150 days, I think. But it's essentially like mid-January to the end of May, every odd-numbered year, and that's it. And so they can't do any other lawmaking unless they get called back by the governor right. for that specific topic. And so there's like thousands of bills that get filed every year. And so, you know, what our state has medical association has done in the, the healthcare realm specifically is try and identify like what are the priority topics, whether that affects patients or whether that affects our practice. So things like prior authorization, et cetera that that folks can follow and so what i've always really suggested for folks who want to do something but feel like how on earth am i supposed to track these 400 things and know where it's going is you have some expertise whether that's clinical expertise life experience expertise practice management expertise etc and really think about that topic which really motivates you and you know, so for somebody maybe listening to this podcast, I'm assuming they have an interest in this topic. And so maybe DEI is what motivates them. And so they can really say, okay, I see this bill that says that, um, you know, my medical school, like I work at a public one, is no longer going to be allowed to have this DEI office if this passes. So I'm going to make sure I call my legislators and let them know as a faculty member, as a student, as a whatever person, this is really what having this office means to me, or this is how this has helped my career journey or my school journey or whatever it is. And if you take this away, this is what I'm worried about. And, you know, you really have to find, you know, I, I also find that there are folks who get really, really passionate. And, you know, you think about, I'll call them activists and not in a negative way, but activists in the sense that they're the ones with the bullhorns and they're out protesting and doing that work. Um, and there's value in doing that work. But if you are a physician or healthcare professional or somebody who cares, you cannot walk into your legislator's office with a bullhorn and tell them how ridiculous this is. Because that's the greatest way for them to be like, thank you for coming. Bye. <laughs> And so, you know, it's it's finding this approach of saying, like, help me understand, you know, I'm your constituent. I really want to understand what problem are you trying to solve? Or, you know, what are you concerned about that my university has this office? And so you're you're trying to get to that that root level of what are they worried about? Sometimes with some of these controversial topics, they're not going to tell you. Um, but you can infer that based on other comments that people have made, but you might be able to have that conversation. And so then you guys can have a dialogue about the, the your concerns, what are their concerns, and maybe alert them to something they had never thought about. And, you know, I, I use this example now as you think about the abortion legislation that we have these women who are now sitting in emergency rooms with like ectopic pregnancies waiting for a lawyer to say like, okay, now you can take care of this ectopic. You know, I, I don't believe them necessarily when legislators say like, oh, we didn't understand this because I'm pretty sure somebody's state medical association was there. But if we give them the benefit of the doubt, now we can have this conversation and they're like, oh, maybe this is a problem. And so you have to be able to give them those experiences. The other piece of advice I would say for folks is like, find something that you know that your legislator is really excited about or they're 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 passionate about and i use this example that my my former congressman is is very proud he's a he was a former marine he's very proud of his country like patriotism is really important to him and being a texan is really important to him and so you know we had this work around um Early in COVID, our meta, I was on a task force about putting together the stuff for return to school in the fall of 2020 for schools. And so I sent in a little web form and said, hey, just wanted to let you know, if you want to show off Texas and the great work we're doing on the House floor, here you go. You can show this off. So I was really kind of playing to his right. Texas is great type of thing. And then when I actually needed to call him up around um, the discussion around um, telemedicine payment parity 
that we got with COVID and how that was going to expire and, and needed legislation. Then when I called him up and said, hey, this is an issue, he was like, all right, let's talk. And so you can find ways, um, you know, like I have a colleague that's out in the Lubbock area and has fairly conservative legislators. So she got in the door by talking about water rights and, you know, which is an issue in an arid part of the, the state. And that's how she got in with her legislator to then be able to dive deeper when it came time to have those more difficult hmm. conversations. So they found that common ground on water and and then got to delve into those topics because then that legislator or their staff knows like you're not just the person coming in with a bullhorn. You're serious about having a conversation. conversation. So those are the couple of tips I would give give listeners as they they think about wanting to do something and know that advocacy looks different for folks. That could be talking with a legislator. There's op-eds, there's you know, going to a city council or school board meeting and just talking about your expertise as a physician or healthcare professional. There's different ways you can do it in a way that feels right for you, but is still important. Fabulous, thank you so much for that. We are closing in on time, and one of the things that I always do is make sure that Jay gets a chance to ask questions because he has a dozen of them, but I usually give him a couple. So, Jay, what do you got for us? Well, you know, it's, as you were saying, Dr. Cooper, about tips, um, not about legislation, but more on the both the patient side and on the doctor side, I, I'm kind of wondering, um, you know, I'm not a clinician at all, so, the, so maybe these questions are obvious or the answers are obvious, but I'm wondering, like, you work with residents, and so if some of the listeners are, are clinicians, you know, if, if they're starting to kind of realize maybe, oh, I have a little bit of unconscious bias, or maybe this is things I'm uncomfortable with, you know, just wondering if there's any practical tips or just to kind of help them to maybe start to develop their, their toolbox or skill set to be able to, to treat patients LGBTQ. Just, I obviously this isn't a course, but just even to help them to, to get a little self-awareness. And then also on the reverse end, any encouragement or advice to, on the patient side for the ones that are going to doctors that maybe don't have that training or that um, the the ability to maybe you know interact with patients and respect them right off the bat but maybe what kind of encouragement or what advice you'd give them when you were giving those examples of patients going into the ER that didn't you know that had to really kind of push things you know I because I know a lot of patients as a result wouldn't want to yeah and and so I, I guess I'll take the the professional side first, which is, I, I'd like to make this clear every time I talk about Im implicit biases, that we all have them. And so biases are a part of being a human, and that's okay. But can you check that bias? And so if you're in the room and you're like, no, I was assuming that if my patient was gay, they're gonna, they would have walked in here with like short shorts and a cutoff shirt and rainbows on their shirt. And they're just like, you know, Joe Marlborough man sitting in my room. So you can check that and be like, okay, maybe next time I see somebody, I shouldn't just assume something because it's there. And so that's my, my practical tip. And then acknowledge it for yourself. You don't have to tell somebody, but acknowledge it for yourself. And the other piece that I would really kind of suggest, because I, I have to say this sometimes to like residents um, or you know, other folks that, you know, just question your biases too and not make assumptions because they'll be like, oh, well, I just assumed because of such and such. And I'm like, nope, that's going to get you somebody who's going to die. And so ask those tough questions. And again, if you don't have the answer, use your patient too. be like, you know, that was really important for you to tell me. How can I help you with that? Because I need some education on doing this. So if you tell me what you need, then I can maybe help you find it with the knowledge I have and the resources I have. So we should always be humble enough to ask for help from our patients when it's something we don't know, because you're not going to know everything. Um, and the, from the, the patient side, this is really easy for me to say because I just tell people like it is. But for that patient in that I gave with the, the urinary tract example, at some point to, to find that confidence for yourself that like in the right scenario, just be like, hi, I have a vagina and that's why I'm having these problems. And so you just sometimes have to be really direct, but 
that's hard. And I think, you know, in a society, again, depending where you are in the country, different cultural norms are there for societal interactions. But many people in Texas talk about like they're polite. And so like if there's a problem, they don't want to tell the doctor there's a problem because like that's not polite. I was like, but I can't help you if I don't know you have something going on. And so whereas speaking of stereotypes, like I was just in New York recently, New Yorkers are just going to tell you how it is. And so you'll get that blunt, honest response. And so I think we just have to not just in DEI or these other top, just for patients to know that they are empowered to question their their physician or other healthcare professional if they see something they're not liking or they feel like they're not being heard. It's okay to say, hi, over here, please listen to me. Um, and so that's what I would give for the patients who are listening to this, or even all of us are patients of somebody at some point. So even if we're the healthcare professional, to be able to ask those questions or or say something if you feel like you're not being understood or you're not being heard. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And that's a little bit challenging even for me, just from I think coming like a Korean culture, a lot of it's mm -hmm. very deferential. And so I think of like my own patient experience or customer experience, wherever, as always, like you just kind of defer and you don't want to bother rather than say mm -hmm. to the doctor, you know, oh, I don't think you understand this, you know, this is what's going on. I just you know, my default would be like, okay, you're right, rather than really mm -hmm. kind of challenge them and say, this is what I need and you're not hearing it. Right. Well, uh, right, I, uh, we are definitely at time and I wanted to respect that you're doing it. I really want to thank you. This was a fantastic conversation um, and I really appreciated hearing your perspective uh, on so many different topics. Um, and so it went so well. I, I know I'm going to be asking you back at a later date. Uh, and so <laughs> hopefully you're welcome here. You're going to join us. Um, but one of the last questions we ask is um, what's a topic, uh, a DEI a topic that you would like to hear about? And or is there a person that you would love to hear from? And if there is, is there a way that you can help us find them? <laughs> well, I, I would say that, you know, and I don't know how you would do this in a topic, but I'll let you think about that. But it's really speaking about DEI from the perspective, as I mentioned, of lived experiences, because yep. oftentimes when we have this, that stereotyping, it's a bunch of white men talking about DEI. And that doesn't always go well, depending on the topic. So... Having folks who can actually speak to lived experiences, understanding this, being able to talk about those things that like, you know, I'll use a racial example that like as a white man, I don't pick up because it's not in my frame of reference right. versus someone else might understand those microaggressions or macroaggressions that that are obvious to them because they're experiencing it. And so I think that's really where maybe doing an episode or if it's one or two people to talk about like the importance of the affected populations in the narrative of the that's, solution. That's a really good call out. I like that. Uh, that's from the patient perspective. Um, that's a that's a really good call out. And uh, I appreciate that. That that gives me something to think about. Perfect. Thank you for joining us for Crossing the Chasm, a Sound Physicians podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Crossing the Chasm wherever you listen to podcasts. Sound Physicians is a multi-specialty medical group committed to improving quality and reducing the cost of healthcare for patients in communities across the country. Learn more at www.soundphysicians.com.